0: Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor Podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Drew Seacrest. Drew is the CEO and co-founder of Connected Dots, and he was employee number 36 at Salesforce.com. We're going to be looking at the power of utilizing your warm market about using your network, about using what is, I believe, humanity's greatest superpower, which is our ability to cooperate. But in order to cooperate, you have to find the people that you can cooperate with. So, without any further ado, Drew, welcome.
1: Marcus, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. Would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your history? Because it's obviously very interesting. And anyone who's been in tech, you were at what is the, you know, a legendary organization right at the outset. So, I suspect people would be interested in that journey.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I'm 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 an American by birth, uh, born in Pennsylvania on the East Coast. And uh, shortly after university in in North Carolina, I found myself working for a small company that uh, was doing consulting engagements with mid-market companies implementing CRM systems back in the the late 1990s. And CRM systems back then were client-server computing-based, like everything was. And uh, so I uh, read an article in the Wall Street Journal I was very fascinated by the internet and how that was going to transform my industry. And in this article in the Wall Street Journal, there was a little footnote about how things were moving to the internet. And uh, this guy named Mark Benioff was leaving a company called Oracle in Silicon Valley with $2 million from the CEO of Oracle, Larry Ellison, to go start a new company called Salesforce.com. And it was going to rewrite Salesforce automation software from the ground up to be delivered as a web page and that blew my mind. You know now in 2023 it's that's all pretty pedestrian stuff but back in 1999 when that I read was that article a huge leap forward huge it was a fundamental change in you know in everything about how you would deliver this software to people. I got very excited about it and I sent an e- a cold email to Mark Benioff and proposed because I was working for this consulting company in North Carolina proposed that we resell his new software, salesforce.com, whenever uh, whenever it was ready. And it was a little bit weird to think about reselling that product that was, you know, because part of, literally part of reselling products back then was they were, came on a CD-ROM. So you would yeah. literally resell the CD-ROM to somebody. And uh, and I was like, well, it's going to be a little weird if we're reselling something that doesn't even have a CD-ROM, but, you know, I'm sure we can overcome that. Yeah. And uh, Mark Benioff, to his credit, got back to me really quickly and said, "Sorry, we're not going to have a reseller uh, network. We're going to have a direct sales team, and we're going to sell it directly." But he said, "Come on out to San Francisco. Let's talk. Maybe, uh, maybe we should figure out how to collaborate." So I flew out to San Francisco and met with a bunch of people there, and and met with Mark. And he, at the end of the interview, he offered he offered me a job. He actually didn't really offer me a job. He uh, he opened up the door. And yelled to Nancy, who was the head of HR at that point. He said, uh, Nancy, get Drew what he wants. And I was like, what do I want? I don't even, what are you talking about? What's the job? We didn't even really talk about the (laughs) the role. But he said, I want you to be an account executive here. And uh, I want you to be an account executive here and sell our products. And that's what you need to do. And and Nancy gave me a comp plan. And it was about four times the amount of money I was making in North Carolina. It was kind of impossible to say no to that. The next thing you know, I, I packed up and moved from North Carolina out to San Francisco and became employee number thirty-six. So the the re, so just kind of fast-forwarding to today, I spent ten years at Salesforce, going from pre-revenue to over a billion dollars in revenue by the time I left, uh, which is amazing to have an up close personal, you know, view and participation in that. And then I uh, I left and I I had an entrepreneurial itch and eventually I had to go scratch it. Scratched it with a company called Kuzu, which is a bit of a crazy, crazy product idea, but it was a lot of fun to pursue. And ultimately, it was not successful, so we wound the company down. I did a little traveling after that, lived in Spain, lived in Costa Rica, picked up some hobbies, kind of did a little pre-retirement. Uh, determined that retirement does not suit me at all. I like to work. <laughs> I, like, I like to do fun things. My, my favorite activity is to work on something that I really love working on. And uh, so I, I moved to New York and uh, ran Revenue. I was the CRO for a startup called um, Rocket Trip, which has had a really, really clever, interesting idea on how to incentivize employees to spend less money when they're traveling uh, on the company dime. It was a clever idea, but uh, you know, could tell you about why it's a challenging product to actually make really have a strong product market fit. But did that for a while, and then concluded, okay, time to scratch the entrepreneurial itch again with all the lessons that I've compiled. And I had an idea uh, that uh, I co-founded this company with three people to go actualize. And that, that uh, idea and that company are called Connect the Dots. And so that's what I'm doing now. I'm CEO of Connect the Dots. We're about a four-year-old, four-year-old startup uh, headquartered in San Francisco, but lots of our team is in Belgrade, Serbia. So I float back and forth between those two locations quite a bit. I actually live in Miami. Between the two, it makes it a little easier to get the both spots. Mm-hmm. And um, we uh, so we are a SaaS company that has a PLG product, product led growth product, meaning anybody can sign up for it and use it for free. And um, it is uh, the intention behind our product is to be the best way to know who really knows who. So how to really cap understand your network, understand who you know, and understand who all of the, the people are that they know, so that you can. Leverage that network for all kinds of meaningful things. First and foremost, for sales, but certainly not stopping there. There are lots of other applications to it. So that's um, that's kind of my that's my background in a nutshell. how
0: I how'd I do? Okay, excellent. So tell me this: um, you're in a business that's growing from pre-revenue to or very early stage revenue to a uh, billion dollars. Um, What's it like surfing that kind of uh, growth wave? Um, mm. And how does the leadership team keep things together uh, when this is completely untrammeled territory for probably all of yep. you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A big adventure, but probably quite daunting.
1: Yeah, none of us had seen anything like that before. I mean, Mark was pretty early at Oracle, but pretty early means I, I think he was, you know, they were probably. Thousand thousand plus employees by the time he got there. Now, obviously, it's much much bigger now. And, but he didn't see that very beginning stage. None of us did. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. It's a very rare experience to be on a rocket ship like that. So, what's it like to surf that wave? It comes in like pieces. There are pieces that kind of I you know think about the different phases that I experienced there. And phase one that I experienced, I didn't exp- experience the very beginning when Mark was in you know, an apartment with his three co-founders and and then a few other early employees building the prototype. That part had ended. By the time I got there, they had just moved into this new office in San Francisco downtown. And it was, you know, everyone on one floor, it was mostly empty, (laughs) but there were a lot of desks there. It was a very ambitious office. You could see all these desks that we were planning to fill. I thought it was great. It was just a cool buzzing with energy, you know, even though there weren't a lot of people there yet. So phase one for me was we had a prototype product that we were getting people to use for free. That was our job. That's what effectively what I was hired to do is give the product away for free to a bunch of people to get their feedback on it. What's working, what's not working. We wanted to see some traction before we're gonna start selling it. And so that 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 you know that first phase was kind of nerve wracking to be honest, because it was 99, there was a lot of money in Silicon Valley. So lots of silly ideas were being funded. And I think we, you know, at some level, we knew it that like, you know, pets.com is a silly idea and probably not going to work. And, you know, the web van, the grocery delivery service that, uh, you know, like, can you really spend all that money and 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 ultimately become a profitable business? Will you, will you survive? There are a lot of ideas that didn't make it. So there was, you know, a little bit of a, Feeling that wow, this is an exciting time, but we also need to figure out a real business, and we don't know if we have a real business because nobody's paying us any money yet. We're just giving it away for free, and will people ever pay us for this? I remember that feeling early on that we're just a website. You know, are people going to pay us to use a website? That was a crazy idea in 1999, mm-hmm. and the reality is that, you know there was a fair amount of complexity logic behind that website. We were a, a very basic CRM system at that point. But would people even pay us a dime? I don't know. Nobody knew because nobody had done it yet. And I remember the day that uh, we flipped on, we started charging. And to be honest, like this is, there's, this is the type of conversation that was happening back in the late 90s and early 2000s. We had a conversation as a sales team. How should we be compensated? Should we be compensated basically on eyeballs, how many people are using our product? Or should we be compensated on revenue that we're generating for the company? And I remember a lot of people in the company, a lot of people in the sales team were like eyeballs. <laughs> this is great. You're going to pay us for He's eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Let, let's do that one. That sounds easy. I was from the East coast and maybe I was a little slow. <laughs> like I didn't understand how things worked in Silicon Valley. And I was like, I don't know if that's sustainable. Like, Can we just keep getting paid on eyeballs for okay. people using our CM practice? I was voting for let's, Let's turn on revenue. Let's start selling it, and then let's get paid on that because that feels like that's something sustainable. That may be pretty unpopular, I think, with the early sales team because everybody else wanted to just get commission checks based on nothing, which is understandable. That could be wrong, <laughs> but, but we uh, we ended up uh, we ended up turning on we ended up starting to charge for the product, and lo and behold, people did pay for it. Now you know it was slow at first, but I remember when we got our first sales coming in. It was very exciting uh, that people were willing to they're, wow, this we're good enough that they're they're gonna pay for this. And so I would say that's you know, phase one was, you know, get the product out there for free and see if people will use it at all. And then phase two was and that you know it was a pretty big shift, is like now will they pay for it? And it was scary. I remember it was like stepping off a cliff, like, I don't know, maybe we'll never get anybody to pay for this thing ever. Lo and behold, they did. So that that was the next phase, and then so we got them to pay for it, and then we had a you know we were at the low end of the market. Salesforce started out at the low end of the market, selling to SMBs. So we just had a lot of people, you know, we it we just had a lot of people selling a lot of these small deals. We weren't the only players in the market, so then competition started to exist in a real way, because now we're starting to compete for for revenue, the finite amount of revenue out there. So I think that's the kind of the next phase is, oh, man, we're not alone in this market. There are, you know, seven different companies out there doing pretty similar things. And then some big entrants started to come in, like Oracle, you know, the company, the guy behind the company, you know, who uh, funded Salesforce, Larry Ellison, he came in with a directly competitive product. And then Siebel was a gargantuan company at that point. And they they had a, you know, they came up with an on-demand product that was basically the same type of thing as Salesforce. So that was the next phase of this. Is like this is not going to be smooth sailing for us. They're not, you know, the market's not just going to be ours. Uh, in fact, we might not even survive. You know, we could be the second or third or fifth, and then we just get acquired by somebody and game over. That's the end of our our ride. And so that was probably the next phase. You know, of riding this wave was okay. This is a competitive market marketplace. How do we differentiate ourselves in every way? What's our marketing message? What features are we going to build that are different? How are we going to have a superior sales team to everybody else? How are we going to do press? How do we get our name out there so that whenever you think of this type of product, you think of Salesforce.com as opposed to anybody else? How do you you know make your customers successful and uh, you know get them to bring in other customers for you? And all those things started happening. So that was kind of the next phase, and um, I would say. We did pretty well there. We did pretty well at all all these different phases. We had some other you know, really challenging things happen, like the dot-com bubble burst. And so we had to deal with it so down.
0: This is 2000 dot-com bubble burst. And uh, you're at what revenue stage now? You're about a million?
1: Yeah, our first million is in. And then uh, I don't remember what the, you know, I, I don't have the actual revenue chart in my mind. So I don't know exactly how fast we grew. But yes, that this is our like, First million to 5 million is happening, and the dot-com bubble is bursting, and a lot of our revenue is just, poof, gone away because the dot-com companies are gone, and those are the ones who are our first customers, so they can't pay us anymore. It was like almost overnight, like 30% of our revenue was just-
0: It's almost like history is repeating, isn't it?
1: Well, you you mean with uh, the market conditions being what they are today, the worst- Yeah, well, with tech selling
0: to tech companies, and then 90% of the value being tanked. In the last yeah. four months, and I don't think many of them are going to survive because they weren't mm. built. They weren't built as businesses; they were built as financial instruments. They started out. As businesses. Uh,
1: there's certainly a lot of that. You know, 2001, 2008, and now you know 2023, all looking to shape up, you know, looking to be pretty similar environments for for companies like the early Salesforce's. Tough um, environments,
0: but the reason I'm really interested in this is history repeats. Human behavior is largely predictable and repeatable because we're wired in mostly the same way, and we don't evolve that quickly. So I'm really curious. You're at that million to 5 million inflection point. You're going through rapid growth. There's a tough economy, a lot of competition. You're not sure you're going to survive. And you're taking on headcount. Yeah? You're
1: scaling. Well, well, we had been taking on headcount, yes. And And then we cut. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, okay, so yeah. then you made a load of cuts. Now, you've made the cut, you survived that, and you're a rep going through that uh, stage. What's going through your mind, and how do you plan in order to prepare for what's to come and to succeed?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. A little side note here, I was promoted into management pretty quickly because I'd been successful in there, you know, very early days of selling, and we were growing so fast, we needed a manager. So I, I was made a manager. And then when we cut, because the dot-com bubble had burst and all these companies went out of business, I thought I was going to be fired. Um, and I thought, because we we cut about 20% of the company at that point. And they didn't fire me. They brought me into an office and said, we are going to fire a lot of people today. You're not one of them. We want you to stay, but we'd like you to move in. We're going to collapse the management structure, and we'd like you to move back into an individual contributor role. I did that. I was very happy. I was actually kind of relieved because it was hard to my team was not successful. It started out successful, but then when the dot-com bubble burst, my team was largely not going to be successful. I didn't see a path for them to be successful.
0: Do you uh, know what blind spots you had at that point that were creating the conditions where they couldn't thrive? Because I'm guessing there were people who were thriving in that market and you were looking on uh, askance and yeah. thinking, why me?
1: It's a great question. Um, you know, Overall, the company just when your revenue drops by like thirty percent because all these companies go to business, that's going to be hard to sustain the same headcount that yeah, you just had. Absolutely. So, so that you know, that was the macro change. But I'll also say, just personally, for me, you know, it's a complex situation. There's the macro change, and then there's this micro situation with me, Drew Seacrest personally. I was kind of a battlefield promotion during this you know dot com bubble as it was growing fast. They took me because I was a very good. Uh, very effective uh, uh, seller, and said, "Okay, go be a manager, and then you know get a team to do what you just did." And so I jumped into that role and did not have a lot of training, or you know, I didn't, I didn't really know what it meant to be a manager. And uh, I knew what it meant to be a very good seller; it meant a lot of work, a lot of focus. But I didn't know what it meant to be a great, great manager. So I ended up primarily just jumping in and doing my my direct reports jobs for them. I would jump in and close every deal that I possibly could. And, and I just ran around and spent all the hours I possibly could spend selling, you know, focusing on the best deals and closing them. What I realized later was that doesn't scale. What you really need to do is there's a state change from being an individual contributor to being a manager. It's fundamentally different. You are now responsible, not for delivering the results, but for enabling a team to deliver the results, and that's different. That's coaching them. That's you know. That's uh, you know, making sure that they have the the tools that they need in order to be successful. And and I wasn't doing any of that. I was just like, okay, you got three got good deals. I'm gonna jump in and deal, do all those deals for you. You so, you have two good deals.
0: Now that you're older and wiser, as you look back on that, and you cringe. What impact do you think that had on your salespeople, and uh, how do you think they felt about you and themselves in terms of their self-concept?
1: I think it was probably terrible for both of us. Everybody wanted to close a deal because uh, they, you know, they got their commission check, and so they were happy about that. But I think there's a kind of a bell curve of skills that you're going to have or capabilities in your direct reports. And I had some that were more junior and needed, you know, needed some more help. I had some that were more senior and needed needed less help. And I think that you know the junior ones who could have been good with the right coaching and guidance they just didn't get it at all. And so I did them a great disservice, I think, at that point. And then the you know the senior ones you played favorites
0: uh, with the A players rather than working the middle middle B players. Rather than you know
1: doing coaching based on each individual person's needs. Here's a real simple way to describe it. I chased the deals. The people were like, I don't know, who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> they just these people have their they have a set of deals, and I'm just looking at which deals I'm going to go get involved in. And that was V1 of Drew as a manager uh, back in you know 2000 2001. And so I, I think I learned the hard way that that is not an effective way to scale up a team. Uh, it's not an effective way to you know help everybody's skills. Get to the next level so that you know they can take care of everything. They they can run their own business, and then you can come in and kind of do the just the little fine touches uh, that need to be done to you know help them be successful.
0: So, what advice would you give to a founder who's going through that rapid scale in terms of slowing down and building that middle management layer and recruiting and developing them? Because at the moment. Middle managers are in the most precarious position that they've Mm -hmm. been in for quite some time. And it was always precarious. They're the most under pressure put upon, largely undervalued and out of their depth people within the business who get about 3% of the global training budget, if that. What advice would you give to a founder in terms of really getting their ducks in a row with that middle management layer? Because the catalytic effect they can have They'll average what seven to eight direct reports. That's a lot of your burn being mm. taken up um, and uh, being put at risk by putting them in, or by having someone in uh, charge who isn't fit for purpose.
1: Yeah, well, it's a great question. I, I'm uh, uh, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on this. I will just say that uh, I'm aware of the you know I'm aware of the need here more than I'm aware of the exact precise solutions. Uh, and just to put things into perspective, we're a company of about 60-some people right now, connect the dots. You know, We do have middle management layers and we've got you know varying degrees of experience in each of those roles. I think the, the, the short answer is you got to invest in it. You have to be aware that you can't just throw somebody into these roles and have them be a great manager. You need to invest in it. There are, luckily now in 2023, tons of resources online. There's a, a friend of mine, runs for example on the sales side of the house a friend of mine runs a a company called you know sassy sales leadership and it's all about SaaS companies the leadership roles in each of those and what are the skill sets you need to have to be a good leader to grow your team to be able to um you know have them become leaders and you can move up the stack so that didn't exist when i was you know a manager there was nothing like that for me to go tap into and uh, you know, Sassy Sales Leadership is certainly not the only uh, company out there doing this, but th- those resources do exist. And for a relatively reasonable amount of money, you can go train that layer of management to get the skills that they're, they're going to need to be successful. So I think something as, as simple as that is what I would suggest.
0: I would also suggest that you focus on teaching managers how to coach, because most have no idea. And they need to become operational coaches, which means that they need to have an operational coaching management style, which is you coach on the job, in the moment, at the point of need, based on what you see and hear. There's no kumbaya moments. Um, There's no faffing around, waiting. Mm. You don't have to do a grow model. None of that. What you're doing is you're intervening at the point where they need. But what you're not doing is disempowering. Mm. The important thing about coaching. Is that you give them the pen back when they've got just enough to work the rest out for themselves? Yeah. and this is where again I think new managers fall foul because they have a tendency to give the answer.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. One other thing I would probably add to this is like there, there's a cultural thing in your company that um, you know there, here's an extreme version of it. I'm certainly not suggesting every company do this. Bridgewater, the the big hedge fund. Uh, ray Dalio. They, uh Ray Dalio yeah I mean ray Ray Ray, you know, kind of went super like super extreme in one direction, which I love theoretically, I think um you know I've never worked at Bridgewater, I do have some friends who've worked at Bridgewater, and I know that it can be a pretty stressful environment based on what they've chosen to do, but they've chosen to give incredibly direct feedback all the time, yeah and if you're if you're not doing that then you're you're kind of in violation of the principles of the company. I am an advocate of transparency and, and immediate feedback and also um, like humanity at the same time yeah. that's the that's the tr- that's the balance that you need to have with it exactly yeah okay. it, like i could see that becoming toxic you know if it with in the wrong hands with the wrong tone it could be a really bad situation but i think that the thing that i've me personally in my career when i've made the most progress it's when i'm getting really good feedback Keep, I, yeah. don't pull your punches with me. I want to hear, like, what did I do well? What did, I'd like to hear that. What did I not do well? What should I change? I want to know that all the time. And I think if you take you adopt that mindset as an individual, and then as a company, then you're going to unlock a lot of power.
0: But you need to hire for that as well. 95% of management problems start in the wrong hire. The other thing managers desperately need to learn how to do is predictive hiring, Uh, One of the programs I've developed is hiring winners because I'm conscious that people don't want to make a hire. What they want to do is they want to hire someone who's successful in the role, gets better over time, and stays. What they don't want to do is have this revolving door. It's bloody tiring. It's incredibly expensive. And it's massively wasteful. And what the message it sends to your customers is appalling. At the moment, a lot of the SaaS companies, they've got a revolving door in in the enterprise space and mid-market. They've got turnover of five months of new AEs, that they haven't even got time to work out what they, where the lavatory is but in that. <laughs> okay, I want to tap into your you know, super knowledge base in the last uh, 20 minutes, which is uh, how do we find and leverage more warm relationships across our organization, both internal and external at scale? Because internal... That's how we generate discretionary effort and we get shit done. Because more often than not, I think that's the hardest part. And I'm curious, start with that, and then we'll worry about the customer facing stuff in a minute.
1: Yeah, and and so just to clarify, I didn't quite catch how you're uh, dividing this. What's the customer facing and what's the internal?
0: Start with how do you leverage your warm network in order to establish an internal uh, network? that is full of advocates, champions, Mm -hmm. and people who will mobilize in order that you can get stuff done and you can generate discretionary effort to help your customer?
1: Yeah. Okay. That's, I think, a great question. So this goes back to culture, I think, in in your company. And I think everybody needs to pick very carefully the company culture that they want to be in uh, and make sure that it's, it's right for them. There's no one right size fits all company culture. I'll start with that. I will tell you that one of the healthiest cultures that I have ever been part of was the the early days at Salesforce. It was really great. It was not all family kumbaya. It wasn't like you know everyone's a winner. No, I mean a lot of people got fired there in yeah. the early days, uh, particularly when the dot-com bubble burst. But there was transparency around what was good, what was expected. And if anybody was falling behind, they got the support that they needed. And if they could not uh, rise to the occasion, then you know they were, they were going to be managed out of the company. No surprises, generally speaking, I would say. It was a, an environment for top performers, and that was the expectation. But it was also a kind place where there was transparency, and I think in the early days, just not not a ton of politics. Everybody was in the in the boat, rowing in the same direction. You need to cultivate that culture in the company in order to have great collaboration amongst everybody. So I think that's the CEO's job. I think the CEO
0: the to... CEO prevent entitlement and cruelty creeping in because I've seen that happen time and time again especially as the pressure gets ratcheted up and you know investors are looking towards their next liquidity event.
1: Probably number one there is you got to deliver success. If the whole thing's fallen apart then it's going to be a mess and it's going to be very hard to you know, keep things together. So you have to like, this is, this is not simple stuff, right? It's not simple stuff to get a startup started from scratch and then make sure that it is delivering successfully on the milestones that has got set out for it. I'm going to go on a complete tangent here for a, a second. We um, operate in San Francisco and in Serbia. Serbia is part of, you know, the former Yugoslavia yeah. and in Yugoslavia under Tito, the benevolent dictator for many years, things were great. And Tito just made it work. You know, he had money coming in from you know both the West and the East. And there was, I think, effectively, you know, full employment and things are good. And then when Tito died and wasn't holding it together anymore and the economy went south, it turned nasty. It turned very nasty. And then you know you had the civil war and and really horrible things happened. So that is a big tangent, but the reason I say that is because when things are going well, it's easy to have a good culture. When things are not going well, you know, and I'd say economically well, if things are not going economically well for a country or for a company, then it's hard to, it's hard to make things work culturally. So you got to deliver that. You, you know, like you as the CEO and the executive team, you got to figure out how to, how to make sure that you are doing all the things to be economically successful as a company. That's the foundational layer. So on top of that, what that is the baseline. You need that. That's oxygen. You know, you, you don't have that. Then, everything else is not going to work. Now, on top of that, I think, you know, you asked about how do you make sure there isn't cruelty and stuff like this. I think you got to have a new asshole rule in a company. You know, it's a, it's, it's pretty simple. You know, everybody knows who the asshole is, you know, uh, if there is and one, if you don't, it's you. <laughs> 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 I, I hope, I hope not, but <laughs> I'll look in the mirror. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, th- I think that's, you just got to have that. You can like, and you can, you know, uh, if you see it happening, if you see that there's somebody who, who is the asshole, then I, you know, you have one intervention with that person, maybe two. And then after that, that person's got to go. And you don't and-
0: tolerate uh, disrespect, cruelty, meanness of spirit. If you're all meant to be working towards the same objective, then act as a team instead yeah. of an egocentric twat.
1: Yes. I have been very pleased. This is just my sense. I don't know if this is actually true, but my sense is like over time, people are actually getting kinder in the general ecosystem less ego, um, more collaboration, more kindness in general. Uh, It's a
0: generational shift. It might be. be I'm definitely seeing that with millennials and Gen Zs. I still see a lot of reactionary behavior coming from the Gen Xs are still around, Uh, not by any stretch, but it's difficult for people to change unless they have certainty that that change is going to be better than uh, where they are, which is why it's so difficult to move people, especially when times are tough. But I'm conscious of time and I really want to make sure that we can tap into your understanding of um, the networking uh, key. So if we're looking at an organization that is trying to scale and grow. The most obvious question, and you you raised it in the green room, but I'm, I'm going to quote you because I absolutely agree with it. How do I align my interests with the interests of the people in my extended network so we mm-hmm. can help each other? When I'm teaching people to uh, build partnerships, the first question I look for them to get an answer to is, what is my partner trying to accomplish? And If they sell something that's compatible with what I do, what is it that they already sell a lot of that they want to sell more of? And how do I help them do that? Mm -hmm. Because it just makes it really easy. They don't care about commission. What they care about is selling the stuff that they care about because they're interested in achieving their own plan. So how do we make sure that culturally we start with that and we do everything to ensure that we're aligning with the needs of others. So we can build bridges. It's easy to do that when you have common ground. It's impossible when you're looking for differences and you're trying to pull a fast one on people.
1: Yeah. So I think there are a lot of different levels at which I could answer this question. And I'll start with a really, really fundamental one, which is, I think for me personally, over time, started meditating, probably in large part because I saw Mark Benioff at Salesforce did this. I knew this was a, you know, Tool in his toolkit, and I, I, I started meditating maybe maybe fifteen plus years ago on a daily basis. Here's my personal experience, very dramatically simplified. When I meditate, the barrier between me and the rest of humanity and the universe kind of disappears for a period of time, and then it might kind of comes back. And you know, towards the end of the day, then I start feeling more maybe more like just Drew as this independent thing, independent of the rest of the universe. But when I meditate and And do that on a on a regular basis, the line between you know me and Marcus disappears, and the rest of humanity. And this is a hard thing to put into words, but essentially, what I think and feel during those periods is, what's good for Marcus is good for me. Like if I can help Marcus, I'm helping myself. If I can help anybody else in the world attain the noble objective that they've got, then I'm helping myself at a foundational level. Um, that if you take that perspective, then that's going to influence all your behaviors. What's Marcus trying to accomplish? Can I help him? Is it is it noble and can I help him? And uh, if it is, then why wouldn't I do it? I'm going to try and help Marcus achieve what he's trying to accomplish. And I have tried to adopt that over you know, my adult lifetime, where if I can just help, if I can be helpful, I'm going to be helpful. It's not always true. But like Maybe somebody's got in, in some you know objective that's not I don't think is a good objective for that person to have then I may not may not you know be going out of my way to help them with it. But in general I think think that's the foundational layer. Okay. Now how does that that affect your your behavior in life? In general it's when I can be helpful, I'm helpful. Somebody asks me for something that, that I can do, I do it for them. If I see proactively like, oh Marcus is trying to accomplish this thing, I know somebody else who could probably help Marcus accomplish that. I'll proactively say, "Hey, Marcus, you want to talk to so-and-so. so and so?" So, if you have read the book *The Tipping Point* by Malcolm Gladwell, there's a, that that activity is or that that archetype of person is called a connector. And I'm definitely a connector. I just, you know, I've got neurons in my brain that just fire automatically whenever I'm like, "Oh, these two people should talk. They're going to both help each other forward their agendas." I've got some friends, actually, some really good friends, who try to monetize on every one of those transactions. Yeah. It, their their brains work the same way, and they're like, "I these two people should talk to each other, and I should get a cut."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't like that. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't like that. I've got some really good friends who are like that,
0: and I'm you know that's a brokerage relationship. It's not given on the basis that it's the right thing for both parties that you're making the introduction for, and that and, raises it to a different level because I think selling and working with partners should be the most noble activities that we perform within our business. We're solving problems.
1: Yes. The whole reason that we sell anything is to solve a problem. And like money needs to come in to fund the problem solving. Like it's just a it's a cycle of problem solving. And well, that's what we're all here to do. And this is where, you know, in that medit that post-meditated state <laughs> where I'm like, Marcus is trying to solve problems. If Marcus solves his problems, he's gonna make the world better for all of us and that expand that out to everybody. So how do we, how do we help? Accelerate problem solving, and just to the the point about like I don't want to cut of every transaction of every problem I solve. I've got kind of my focus. My focus right now is this thing called Connect the Dots. It's my company, and you know that's that's where I am focusing on. Like I focus on solving problems in the world of connecting people using Connect the Dots, and we have a free product, and we have a paid product, and it's very clear. Like how do I get paid, and how do I Put money back into our systems so that we can accelerate the flywheel of spinning this problem. Well, it's it's through developing developing uh, connect the dots, and some of our you know our our corporate customers pay us to do that, and that's that's where my bread is buttered essentially. But then the rest of what I do is basically like I'm just a freelance problem solver. I'm happy to jump in anywhere and everywhere where I can help somebody else solve a problem of theirs. Anyway, that's a foundational approach to how I view it.
0: Does that kind of give you a- It it does. Uh, Unfortunately, we've come to time and I rambled too much uh, throughout. So I'm really sorry that we don't have more time, but I would love to have you back because this conversation was incredibly productive. Tell me this, your best mistake, as you look back over your career, what was the best mistake you made and what did you learn from it, even though at the time it may have hurt?
1: Long list of mistakes. So I don't know which one would be the best, but I probably would say my first startup after Salesforce, Kuzu. So many amazing things came out of that. I remember, you know, I I remember actually hearing via a friend when uh, I didn't talk to Mark directly about this, but Mark at Salesforce. But when I had started the company, he had told one of our common friends, he's like, Oh, what you know, Drew's doing this in Serbia. I went to Serbia and built a team there. And he's like, what a mistake that was. And basically said, You shouldn't have done that. You should have done that here in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. And you know, Mark might be right at the time, but if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have built my network in Serbia, and I wouldn't have had I wouldn't have had the foundation for the team that I now have there. And um, and so I I consider that you know it might have been a really hard, painful mistake to go do an entire startup and fail, yeah. just so that I could lay the foundation for the next uh, startup. But hey, maybe that's how it works. You know, I guess stay tuned. So, Drew, how can people get a hold of you? I'm on email. Yeah, you can send me an email at drew at ctd.ai, D-R-E-W at ctd.ai. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. I'm not super active on social media. I'm there. You can find me at Drew Sechrist on Twitter, but uh, you'll note that I don't have a lot going on. So probably the best thing is email right now.
0: Excellent. Okay, one final question then. You can go back, you've got a golden ticket, and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Drew, age 23. What one bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored at the time, but would have been hugely beneficial
1: twenty three years old should I just say buy Google stock? <laughs> um, I, I would definitely say buy google stock <laughs> but 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 as far as a career career piece of advice, I would say, you know drew, when you do make the leap from individual contributor to manager, go find a really good mentor to help you make that that shift so that you are adjusting your entire approach.
0: That's rock solid advice. Chris Seacrest, thank you. Marcus, great talking with you. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, and do leave us an honest review, one star or five stars, don't care which, just leave one. And if you are looking for a coach who will kick your ass kindly, but firmly, and leave you no quarter for excuses, then drop me a line. There's a link in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.